Everyone needs a pastor. A Visit to the Pastor study brings biblically faithful pastoral ministry to you and pastoral ministry from those with proven experience in Christian service. Our time together will be lively, sometimes controversial, always useful, and never dull. Welcome to the study of Pastor Bill Shishko. And this is Pastor Bill Shishko here with you. It's great to have you with us for another Visit to the Pastor's study. I'm ashamed to say it, but during my high school years at the end of the turbulent 1960s, I professed to be an atheist. I was arrogant, mentally rebellious, and, well, to put it mildly, headed in bad directions. In my community, I was the least likely person one would expect to become a committed Christian. But God used two things to unsettle me, to keep me from becoming as bad as I could have been, and to, if I may put it this way, prepare me for saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. One was a profound, and I mean a profound, conviction of my own sin. But that's for another day. The other was that even as a professed atheist, I simply could not accept the theory of macroevolution, the idea originally put forth in Charles Darwin's 19th century book, The Origin of Species, that all of life developed over millions of years by way of natural selection through which simpler forms of life progressively became more complex forms of life and all purely by the random forces at work in a merely material world. In my high school biology classes, I read and heard the assumption of macroevolution. I studied the artwork that was meant to show the progression from one type of living creature to another. I learned of studies that were said to prove macroevolution, but I just couldn't buy it, even as a professed atheist. Why not? Well, first, I couldn't accept the macroevolutionist theory of how life came from non-life. I couldn't be persuaded that electrical charges striking pools of primordial soup would have the ability to convert mere chemicals into a living organism, and how that could account for the vast array of life that would come to fill the earth. So I badgered my poor biology teaching by asking how and when and where this had ever been reproduced in a laboratory, not realizing at the time that even if this could be done, and it hasn't, there would have been the intelligence and planning of a very smart scientist in back of the experiment. In the second place, I couldn't get away from the fact that there was, and still is, an utter lack of of transitional species, of things like amphibians and reptiles eventually evolved into birds, where were and where are the creatures that are intermediate between the creatures of land and water and those that so marvelously and mysteriously command the skies? On every assumption of macroevolution, I just couldn't understand how birds evolved. And birds continue to fascinate me, as in many ways they defy the theory of macroevolution. And then in the third place, I just couldn't wrap my mind around the idea that things just evolve at random from the simple to the complex. 
The DNA helix had been discovered in 1953, and as I studied this molecular structure that carries genetic information from one generation to another, even as a high school student, it was obvious to me that the more we learned about the most basic elements of life, the more we found amazing complexity and not simplicity. Things just don't naturally go from simple to complex. Macroevolution didn't make sense, and the wonder of life, its variety, and its awesome design didn't square with atheism. So I became an agnostic until I heard teaching on the biblical doctrine of creation, the fall, and the meaning of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God was at work in me, and by what was most certainly a display of his sovereign grace, my heart was changed. I surrendered to the God in whom I and you live and breathe and have our very beings. I received and rested on Jesus Christ alone, as he was freely offered to me in the gospel, and I was converted, interestingly, while I was working in a secular radio station in 1970. And I'll never forget the experience of leaving the radio studio that afternoon, of seeing a snow-covered tree, and of being able to say, and this was so liberating, I can know the God who formed the snow and who made that tree. Well, praise the Lord for his grace that frees us to see the world and human history as it truly is. Well, I later came to realize that macroevolution was really a religion, a faith commitment. Adherents of macroevolution didn't see how the world came into being or how life came from non-life. They have a religious commitment to the way they believe these things happened. And adherents of macroevolution can't give clear examples of one species evolving into another. They have a religious commitment to the belief that it, but it does happen. Adherents of macroevolution can't explain how simple life is irreducibly complex, but has nevertheless evolved into even more complex life systems. They have a religious commitment that somehow this just happens. A myth has been defined as a man-made story, ostensibly with an historical basis, serving to explain some phenomenon of nature, the origin of man, and of other things, or simply any fictitious story. By those definitions, macroevolution is a myth, a man-made story serving to explain the origin of the world and the beginning and the development of life. It's a counterfeit of the biblical story. Now, we're not talking about microevolution, although for various reasons some people don't like that term. Clearly, there's development within species. There are poodles, beagles, basset hounds, greyhounds, and collies, but all are dogs. Macroevolution means, among other things, that one species can gradually become another. Dogs, theoretically, could become cats. That reigning orthodoxy of American science, macroevolution, is what I am calling a myth. But of course, I'm a pastor and not a trained scientist with a PhD after my name, and all scientists with PhDs believe in macroevolution. Right? Wrong. Though questioning the reigning orthodoxy of macroevolution, otherwise known as the general theory of evolution, may very well jeopardize a person's academic position or status. 
Increasing numbers of scientists in every field are coming forward to say of that religious commitment, the emperor has no clothes. The theory of macroevolution is a myth. And for today's visit to the pastor's study, I have two scientists, PhDs with decades of research and teaching experience between them, who are very eager to expose the myth of macroevolution. Dr. Larry McHarg is a graduate of Occidental College. He earned his Master of Science degree in botany, began his Ph.D. work at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada, and in 1973 completed his Ph.D. program in the field of botany at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Galen Hunsicker received both his undergraduate and master's degrees from the University of California, Riverside. He began his Ph.D. program in zoology at Brigham Young University, and completed it at Loma Linda University in California. Doctors McHarg and Hunsicker met and taught for many years at what is now known as Vanguard University. And while they are both <clears throat> retired, they keep up on their respective fields of botany and zoology, and they are unembarrassed about their commitment to Jesus Christ, to the biblical doctrine of creation, and to exposing the myth of macroevolution, and they've done a lot of preparation for this visit to the pastor's study, and I'm going to let them loose in just a moment. Remember, though, this program invites and encourages you to call in with your questions. It's your way of visiting the pastor's study by way of telephone or text. Our live call-in number, 631-955-5400, You can also text your questions to the special number, 516-367-0391. Put it down under Pastor Bill, 516-367-0391. But for now, Drs. Larry McHarg and Galen Hunsicker in California. Hey, welcome to a visit to the pastor's study. It's good, it good, it's good to be here, Bill. Well, it's good to have you with us, Dr. McCarg. And hello, Dr. Hunsicker. Well, hello, Bill. I like you already. In your, <laughs> in your gentle, welcoming style, it's very reflective. Well, that's just a reflection a, of New York I hospitality. I feel as if I have a, a, a great colleague here. Okay. All right. Why don't you both tell us individually how and why you came to reject macroevolution or the the general theory of evolution is a myth. Dr. McCarg, why don't you start? Okay, I will. I once did believe in macroevolution. I was taught it in school. I was getting it in both elementary, middle, secondary school, and then into college. And I do remember being something of a, a really a macroevolutionist. For example, I can remember being beside... Ten Mile Creek in the Sierra Nevada, looking at the smooth, polished rock, the granite, and looking at the mosses and things that were beginning to grow and come in off the land. And I began to think of all this grandeur of the mosses growing, soil accumulation gradually, various kinds of plants growing, finding the trees, the forests, and so on. And I thought this is really a magnificent thing. And it is, but that's not all there is. And so I did see this grandeur. At that time, when I looked at that, I could have been considered to be an agnostic. And I wasn't thinking a lot about origins, particularly particularly the creation of life from non, non or, or inorganic material. But uh, my thoughts at that point would have been, 
been in concert with Richard Dawkins' book, The Greatest Show on Earth. And I also thought that an acquaintance that I had who did not believe in that was really quite daft. How could he say such a thing? But then later I became a Christian. And that didn't immediately change my thinking because I was still a macro-evolutionist for some time. But it did have a profound effect on me because suddenly I could consider other things besides what I'd been taught. Then I took a course in comparative anatomy of the vertebrates. The, the author of the text was Alfred Romer, and it was, he was the best known of the paleontologists and, and animal origins really in the 20th century. And suddenly I began to think, this doesn't make much sense. Where are all these transitional forms? It's always a common ancestor, and we don't have anything, any kind of evidence of, of those things. And so I began to have doubts about Darwinian evolution, and they grew over a period of time. And there were a number of things that have caused me to really change my feeling my, and my, my ideas about this whole area. One of them is... Simply, I think there's a paucity of evidence for it. There's just not that much evidence. And the other thing, with respect to evidence, I look at the probability of the complex molecules being formed to go into living things. And even one of them, not, let alone thousands of them, are not going to be formed in a spontaneous kind of, of way. And the whole question of, of abiogenesis is, is a very serious one. But in any case, I gradually... Now, why, do, why don't you define abiogenesis for those... Oh, this <laughs> those is the formation of, of, of a living cell or living materials from inorganic materials. Ah, okay, all right. The primordial soup that you mentioned in your, your opening and that Darwin talked about, what if there was this nice little soup and it had methane and it had all the ammonia and various things, and electric sparks and all that. And at that point, when I was in, in college, it wasn't so long after Stanley Miller had done his work in trying to form things, and he got a few amino acids and things, but nothing has really advanced since that time. There have been no more success in trying to get living material out of inorganic things than there, there was at, at that particular time. Yeah, I mean, so, an amino acid is not organic. I mean, it's not life. It, it, no, it's not. Right. And there, there are 20 basic amino acids, and they all have a certain thing in common. They have the NH2 group, they have the acid group, and they get put together in peptide bonds to make, to make proteins. But the probability of anything like that happening spontaneously is so low that there would not be enough time in the entire universe as as postulated with the time to, to accomplish it. And that's been looked at pretty carefully at this point. And so anyway, I, I recognize that I'm a scientific heretic, and probably the word for it is the troglodyte, uh, one, a cave dweller living off in things and being opposed to all sorts of modern thinking and so on. I've been accused of that sort of thing. But I gradually broke with it. And uh, so if I'm, a, if I'm a heretic, so be it. Yeah, uh, a recent book called Heretic yeah. and we, we is need one to put that this I would in... really recommend. Yeah. It's one scientist's journey from 
from Darwin to design, and the man's name is Mati Lisola, and it's really a good book, and it reflected quite a lot of the thinking that I underwent. Uh, interesting. Yeah, when we say heretic, we're not talking about with respect to your Christian convictions, uh, but with respect to the religion of what's often called scientism, I would think. Fascinating. Exactly. Yeah, Dr. Hunson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Hello there. <laughs> because this is a, one thing I've got to say, and that is macroevolution and the assumptions under form a, a religious thought. It, it is religion. All right. Yeah, that's one of the things I was going to ask. Dr. Hunsicker, tell us for yourself how, how you uh, and why also you came to reject macroevolution or the general theory of evolution. Well, like Larry, I was a Christian before I really began to reassess the whole doctrine of macroevolution, which is from the future of this point in time I will call general theory of evolution, or GTE as it's often called. But it, unlike Dr. McCarg, it took me a little longer to reject that uh, theory. It wasn't really until I began teaching at Vanguard University, a Christian college, that I started to really question the doctrine uh, that I had so, for, so long assumed to be, as some would say, a, a fact like gravity. Well, gravity wasn't working so well when I taught general zoology and the upper division pre-med courses of comparative anatomy, embryology, genetics, microbiology. Now... I was a professor. I'm not a student anymore. I had to dwell, delve into these subjects with much greater expertise. And what I found was nothing short of the emperor's no clothes. And like Dr. McCarg, this conversion came when using the classic text Vertebrate Paleontology by Alfred Romer, and he was the foremost expert on the subject. But here in this book, so many candid acknowledgments to the sudden appearance of so many orders and classes of vertebrates and with complete puzzlement regarding any of the transitional fossils that preceded them. But it was the Cambrian explosion that finally convinced me of the myth of macroevolution. For here, in the blink of an eye, a geologic eye, instead of a few simple organisms, that there was an explosion of complex, higher taxa. For Darwin believed it started with smaller, lower, simple, ta- and then became the higher taxa. But here were higher taxa, representing over 50 phyla separate, more than double the number we have today. And what do we see? Exquisite detail of echinoderms, sponges, brachiopods, mollusks, crustaceans, and trilobites, whose eyes are often turreted on turrets if they're benthic and are far more complex than the modern ones we have today. I'm sitting next to one of these that I... 90 bucks to have because its turret was exquisite and you can feel the ridges on the compound eye that are like little umbrellas to give shading to uh, allow them to sense a predator in their lower in their bottom of their ocean but here's the kicker there was and never has been a trace of any transitional fossils preceding any of them darwin had no answer for this mystery i like what the late stephen gould said in pandas thumb a great writer he was for natural history magazine and Harvard professor, he best summed it up with this phrase, the fossil record had caused Darwin more grief than joy. Nothing distressed him more than the Cambrian explosion, the coincident appearance of almost all complex organic design. So it was sort of a gradual transition, but it was being as a professor that was causing me to spend much more time. And I had a lot of autonomy in all these upper division courses. And although some of them were real challenges, 
it really began to not only cause me to change from GTE, but begin to have a much firmer grasp of what might be some alternatives from scientific point of view. And I know that when I just said that last sentence, it seems like an, an, an imbalanced puzzle part. But it isn't for me anymore. <laughs> Dr. Hunziker, what would you say, though, if people say, yeah, well, okay, we, we, we don't have transitional uh, fossils of transitional species, but we only have a fraction of a, of a percent of the fossils that are out there. How would you respond to that argument? Well, that was Darwin's basic uh, uh, defense. He recognized that there was that great paucity of fossil representatives. But in the 1860s, when his book took off like wildfire, he defended it by saying that we have but just a few uh, sentences of, mispla- of, of incomplete paragraphs of chapters still to be found in the geologic record itself. Well, that can no longer be used as, as a defense. Colin Patterson, the late Colin Patterson of the American Museum of Natural History, makes that very clear. From that time, we've had 150 years, boatloads, billions of fossils, and they either come uh, new or they are just those that are uh, what we've already seen, but none of them represent uh, that transitional form. And so this can no longer be used as a defense. Fascinating. We're dealing today with two professors, one of botany, Dr. Larry McCarg, and a zoologist, Dr. Hunts, uh, Dr. Galen Hunsaker, on the myth of macroevolution. And we've just started. Uh, so we'll be back to this. Let's, we're going to talk a little bit about whether it's legitimate to call macroevolution a religious commitment. But first, this message from the voice of a visit to the pastor's study. That great city, New York. Metropolitan New York is the largest city in the United States. And with a population of over 20 million people, Metro New York is one of the largest cities in the world. And what's more, Metro New York is home to people from every nation of the world. To reach Metro New York is to reach the world. But churches faithful to historic Reformation Christianity in the Metro New York area are few and far between. The mission fields of Metro New York are America's richest, and most neglected. Reformation Metro New York is an agency by which the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is planting and developing biblically faithful churches and church ministries in the Metro New York area. Through Reformation Metro New York, you can help promote the outreach of this program, a visit to the pastor's study, and other projects designed to further the ongoing reformation of the church. That and church planting are the great passions of Reformation Metro New York. For more information, check out the website at ReformationMetroNY.org, where you'll get a personal look at the ministries of the churches, pastors, evangelists, and teachers of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the area, and you'll learn how you can be a part of our labors. We need your help. Here's the site again, ReformationMetroNY.org. Thanks for your interest and your help. Remember that great city, New York. To reach Metro New York is to reach the world. Now back to today's edition of A Visit to the Pastor's Study. Pastor Bill Shishko here with you today and my two distinguished guests, Dr. Larry McCarg and Dr. Galen Hunsaker, as they are dismantling macroevolution, what we're calling the myth of macroevolution. If you'd like to call with your questions, Call in number to be on the program, 631-955-5400, 631-955-5400. If you want to text your question, if that's easier for you, text it to Pastor Bill, 516-367-0391, 516-367-0391. Dr. McCarg, we've called, both, we all have called macroevolution 
a religious commitment. Develop that for us. Said, I don't have that kind of faith that you have to have to, to believe it. I, I just can't, can't go in that direction. How so? There are several things that should be said. One is, it is faith-based, and the most common form of it is, is called methodological naturalism. And it says that evolution is strictly caused, and I'm talking about macroevolution, by materialistic processes. It's materialistic by design. Darwin designed his, his doctrine in that way as well. And I'm using the word doctrine advisedly. But it is often uh, something that people don't seem to realize, that yet it is there. It's a strong faith, and it says that all things have come about by natural means and processes, no, how, no matter how unlikely it might be. It's not a new idea. It's been held with an emotional fervency, though, that tolerates no dissent at all. And it reaches the level of dogma. Any data that conflicts with neo-Darwinism is either explained away, denied, or ignored. One of its adherents, as Scott Todd, said, even if all of data point to an intelligent designer, such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it's not, not naturalistic. We had quite a, a series of, of articles and letters in the local newspaper here in Pasadena, where I live, and one of the things that people were saying is we cannot look at the idea that anything has been created by design because if we do, it's not science. That's a philosophical position. It's not a scientific one. And when you exclude the possibility of looking at, at something other than the processes that are being strained to try to account for things, you've really cut yourself off in terms of being able to look at, at naturalistic or or design kinds of, of things. How, did we come about by some design? Has God done this? And that at least ought to be a possibility to be looked at, and, and people aren't. And people who don't are often castigated and, and really punished. People have lost their jobs. Uh, an example is Richard Sternberg, who was demoted from being the editor of the Smithsonian Journal because he let a peer-reviewed article be published that actually questioned macroevolution. They tried to get him to resign. He didn't do it, but he was demoted severely. And so uh, it is an alternate position, and people do not like to have their worldview challenged. And I understand that. And if I might just chime in on this, I've been doing hundreds of hours of study this past summer and the fall on a text that was written by Guillermo Gonzalez called The Privileged Planet, in which he takes to issue the comment Carl Sagan made back in, 19, in the early 1990s that we live on but an insignificant uh, planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy somewhere misplaced in the corner of the universe of which there are more stars than galaxies. I find that intriguing, and I'm trying to dissect completely each part of that statement. One other thing I might point, there is a book called The Myth of, Religi of Religious Neutrality by Roy Clauser. He gave me a copy of it, but it is a very good work. It's published by the University of Notre Dame Press, and he says that people are not, not neutral, and that that certainly applies to those who hold macroevolution. They will, they will look at things and str sort of straining at the gnat, to be able to try to fit things into their, their system. And I understand that. And yet, in many cases, they're not being 
either rational or very, very honest in it. You know, I'm not saying all macroevolutionists are dishonest or something of that sort. It, 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 it is a work that that bears reading. Yeah, if I could just interrupt for just a moment, it's it's interesting to me that that the the world of science will rule out. Um, a, a divine creator because they can't basically put put that divine creator in a test tube or quantify him or qualify him materially but isn't that That's also isn't that also true of the theory that things just develop naturally you can't prove that with a in a test tube either or, or am i not thinking clearly about that you're quite right on that and that's one of the points where I just don't have that kind of faith to think that that could happen. Thomas Kuhn wrote a book called, uh, about paradigms and how difficult they are to change, and certainly they have been through the history of science, as we all do. We're comfortable with what, what we've known before. So could you develop both? We've got a couple minutes before our break, but Dr. McCarg, what does it mean, though, that this is a religious commitment to evolution? How does that kind of play out? It's going to affect everything you do, no matter what it is in the area of biology. And it's, it's, it's an all-pervasive thing, and at the base of it, of course, it's, it's atheistic. Because if everything is materialistic, then there's no room for, for anything else. And really, it's an outgrowth of the empiricism that was so common in the late uh, 18th century and has continued on to the present day that you can't know anything other than what you can sense. And so uh, it means that even if there is some very clear data that indicates there has things have been planned, it'll be rejected right at the outset. You, you can't even consider anything of that sort in this. And if you do consider it, then you're usually being accused of being a, a Bible-waving fundamentalist. Now, I believe wholeheartedly in the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that with all my heart, mind, and soul. But you can't consider that, given the, the materialistic assumptions underlying macroevolution. But, but, but is, Perhaps I can chime in after no. our break. I'm not sure, Bill, how no, much time No, that, that's have, fine. We can be fluid. Let, let me, before Dr. Hunsinger said, so, so am I also right, though, even when we say the only knowledge that we can have must be derived from our senses, that can't be proven either. Isn't that itself a faith commitment? It, it is a faith commitment, and that's one reason why macroevolution is, is, is essentially religious in nature. Okay. Dr. Hunsinger. Well, I would have to say that since there's really not one real good shred of evidence that shows macroevolution or the progression, as Darwin would say, from this grand view of life, from such a simple beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have spread out and evolved to turnips and elephants and whales. Uh, and so now most scientists uh, would disagree with this, of course, what I just said, as they believe their careful scientific methods have clearly shown Beyond a doubt, that the fact of ever, of GTE or the greatest of, of the general theory, like the greatest show on earth, as Richard Dawkins would say, but his evidence is trotted out to support that. But it's simply a rehash of the previous defenses that we've had over almost 80 years. 
all of which merely demonstrate microevolution, variations by mutations from that organism's original DNA. And I'm sure the, your audience have heard of some of these common examples, antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria, melanistic moths of England, the sickle cell anemia conditions, where we believe that was benefiting those that lived in malarial conditions. It really isn't in the long run. And Darwin's 13 species of Galapagos finches. In each and every case, natural selection proved conservative, not creative. Natural selection has really no power to create new DNA or all those coordinated structures necessary to create new creatures. The bacteria are still bacteria, moths are still moths, finches still finches, while those individuals that inherit two copies of that deadly recessive allele for sickle cell anemia have a far greater chance of dying young, of which one of my colleagues did at the age of 38 at Cypress College in 1998. So thus, without the fossil evidence and without laboratory proof, what else can we conclude? The GTA must be accepted on faith. And what do we often call that? A religion. A religion. I like what the ODS Jubjansky said in this statement in 1973 in his essay that criticized creationists and espousing theistic evolution. He said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Well, he was a disciple of Thomas Hunt Morgan of the 1910s when he studied the little microbes and, and fruit flies and the little allelic frequencies that changed. He did not see the bigger picture that we look at consistently. So someone forgot to enlighten the likes of Edward Jenner, who came before Darwin, who developed the first vaccine against smallpox, or Louis Pasteur, who gave us the germ theory of disease. They were staunch creationists and did their work with that paradigm. Biology made plenty of sense to these men, completely uninformed by the GTA doctrine of their day. But Dubjansky was a disciple of that, as I mentioned, so his view was, was, uh, was persuaded, if I, if I might say, by, by what he studied. The inability to, for, of natural selection to increase complexity was a major factor in my thinking. Oh, fascinating. Same, same with mine. I told you, folks, we're going to let them loose, and then we let them loose. Gonna, Ooh, let we, the dogs we, out. Yeah, we, <laughs> we need some. We, need, we all need some time to let this settle a little bit and, and let it and let it uh, rest in us, so that we can develop in our in our thinking. Um, just take a moment here before we come back to the very fascinating Dr. Larry McCarg and Dr. Galen Hunsicker on the topic of the myth of macroevolution. Just so you know, this program, A Visit to the Pastor's Study, is brought to you every week by the Orthodox Presbyterian churches that are in East Haddam, Connecticut, and in Hamden, Connecticut, and in Mount Vernon, New York, in Fresh Meadows, Queens, and here on Long Island in Franklin Square and Syosset and Bohemia, all congregations of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and our thanks to them for making provisions so that we, through WLIE and Redeemer Broadcasting, can be reaching you in your homes and your cars and elsewhere. We have many archives of A Visit to the Pastor's Study. You can get them at Visit the Pastor's Study, all one word, visitthepastorsstudy.org or at www.sermonaudio.com, where we have our own place, a visit to the pastor's study, which is our site on sermonaudio.com. But check out those archives. Many are fascinating as we seek to equip saints for the works of the service. We'd love it if you'd like us and follow us on Facebook. We value your questions and your comments. And this week we do have a free book offer. Don't want to forget that. It's a book about cosmology, how, how the world began 
by John Byle, B-Y-L. The book is God and Cosmos, A Christian View of Time, Space, and the Universe. God and Cosmos, A Christian View of Time, Space, and the Universe by John Byle. We're thankful that the Banner of Truth Trust has donated some copies of that to us so we can make them available to you. Just email me at visitpastorbill, all one word, visitpastorbill at gmail.com. And uh, please include your mailing address, and we'll get a copy of that off to you. Uh, Also, a book I would recommend. It's not a freebie, but uh, one that that you will find helpful to delve into. Uh, The whole subject is Darwin's House of Cards. Darwin's House of Cards by Tom Bethel, B-E-T-H-E-L-L. Fascinating overview. But what is most fascinating is Dr. Larry McCarg and Dr. Galen Hunsicker. Dr. McCarg, a biotinist, and Dr. Hunsicker, a zoologist, and they're tackling the myth of macroevolution. If you'd like to call with your questions, 631-955-5400, 631-955-5400, or text your question to Pastor Bill, 516-367-0391, 516-367-0391. Dr. Hunsinger and Dr. McCarg were told that belief in the doctrine of creation destroys good science. So how do you respond to that? Let's start with Dr. Hunsicker. Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, that's probably your favorite, my favorite question that you've given us. Uh, it's a statement that in and of itself is truly a myth. And it's, it's not a new uh, uh, philosophy. Perhaps I think the best example of this erroneous argument was given by the German zoologist uh, Ernst Haeckel, famous for his fraudulent embryo drawings of the 1860s. Thoroughly proven false. But this arrogant professor pontificated this nonsense with this statement. And I love this statement because it exemplifies so many of the German militarists and elites of that time period through the 70s and 80s of that 19th century. When faith begins, science ends. That's interesting. interesting. Being the heretic, I am. Nothing could be further from the truth. The very foundations of modern science were developed by creationists who, where evolutionary doctrine absolutely played no role whatsoever. Just consider the following. I have a list, perhaps too long, but I'd like to hit a few of them. Copernicus in the 16th century and Galileo developed the heliocentric theory that ushered in the scientific revolution. Newton and Kepler, with their universal law of gravity and elliptical planetary orbits used by NASA's space program to get us to the moon. And then the father of, of the rocket Saturn V rocket in the American space program, I'm sure you know, Werner von Braun, who said that it would, be an, a, an ac- it would be a mistake to believe that the universe was formed by accident, and he's known as the father of American space program. Jenner, past year, I mentioned, I think, already earlier on smallpox, anthrax, rabies vaccine, and destroying germ theory by past year. And then consider Faraday and Maxwell and the things they had to say, James Kirk Maxwell. Uh, our, our whole field, what we're using now in electromagnetism, in cell phones and whatnot, is developed first by them in motors and generators that ushered in the Industrial Revolution at the end of the 19th century. They did their work doing what, what Johannes Kepler would say, thinking God's thoughts after him. And then Robert Boyle, the list goes on and on. Gregor Mendel, father of genetics, William Thompson, thermodynamics. And then I find this interesting, Wilbur and Orville Wright, very devout Christians. And yet, of course, we know that they invented the airplane, but did those people know that they really uh, were pushed towards that by studying God's design in birds? Yeah. Which is fascinating, the David McCullough uh, biography history of, of the, Wright, the Wright brothers. It goes yeah. into that in much detail. Yeah. 
Yes, they do. Yeah, and one of the things yeah, that I, I mentioned... I find it totally fascinating. Yeah. And, and, and Charles Babbage, so the next time you listeners out there are working on computers, consider his invention of the first computer machine. Or James Simpson, when you have anesthesia, and if you go under... It was James Simpson. I'd who, rather not, but <laughs> I, I, may, I, I really don't like that idea. <laughs> but he, did you know that he developed that idea because he believed that God was the first? Now I have to wipe this, wash this pronunciation. Anesthesiologist. Anesthesiologist. <laughs> based out of Genesis. Ah, you'd two, make it two, radio. You're doing when, well pronouncing words. 21, when God put... <laughs> Adam, uh, comfortably to sleep in making he. <laughs> uh, Bill, with respect to your question, I'd like to chime in on this one as sure. well. A lot of the macroevolutionists have, have held for a long time that macroevolution is the only logical way to approach biology, the only way it should be studied. And the vast, I would point out the vast majority of experimental work really isn't reliant on it at all. We didn't have to know, for example, or believe that macroevolution is true to come up with the structure of DNA, as it was in 1953, and Rosa Franklin did with her X-ray diffraction in about 1950. She died of of the oh. effect of the radiation. But the vast amount, vast majority of this work is not dependent on it. And if it wasn't you're informed by it. If you're looking and or not informed by it. If you're looking, for example, at some of interleukin-2 that's been used, that doesn't depend on macroevolution. You, you may make the claim that's why it's there, but that's not it. 95% or so or more of the research in it is not dependent. We're, I think we're going down the wrong trail on this. What we should be doing is be, there is a hierarchical organization of things from atoms up to molecules to organelles to cells and then if you have multicellular organisms tissues and organs and so on all the way on up to the biosphere but in looking at it we should really be looking at the arrangements of things within this hierarchy how do they interact among themselves how do they interact with other i think that would be a much more fruitful area of research and more of an ecological bigger picture of that interaction yeah it would be and so this is where I, where I think the things ought to be going. Now, so there are obviously some studies that have to do only with, with this whole area of macroevolution, and, and they're off to the side, and I think they've been surprisingly unfruitful. But nonetheless, uh, I think that we're, we've been going in the wrong direction. And I think we also see various kinds of types that have been created, and then you see variation coming on, on these. And the, 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 there is no good explanation of how these major things came up. Now, sometimes they're given in taxonomic terms like phylum and so on. I think that's too simple. But I think things are much more complex than that. But we should be looking at this kind of thing. And in some cases, there simply is no evidence as how they came about. I can make a suggestion as to how they came about. But it is something that... Uh, I think we really need to, to very carefully consider in this whole area of research and, and gaining knowledge. Well, let, let me ask if you. I might just inter- sure. interject right here. Um, I've been fascinated by a book from uh, Jonathan Sarfati. He's an Australian uh, creationist, but he came from an evolutionary paradigm. But he wrote a, a devastating treatise against Richard Dawkins' greatest show. Uh, and his title takes off from that. He's a master chess player, 
and it's the, it's the best Socratic argument against the microevolutionary defense that Dawkins throws out as a straw man for creationists, because Dawkins would have us believe that creationists are just fundamental idiots, still holding on to that original uh, creation uh, as a lawn, separate species from the beginning, which no informed creationist would ever do. We, we see it as an orchard where the trees are separate graded kinds, such as dogs, tremendous plasticity. We do believe in change over that, and, and, and certainly the, the environment is important. Darwin did give us something very important, and that is the effect that the environment does have on those, on those kinds of changes from those original kinds. But that greatest hoax on Earth is devastating. It's the best treatise I've found out there. He takes apart each point of, Dar- of Dawkins. But the, very, but the changes uh, are, are within kinds or species, yeah. is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. That, and, There's boundaries and, within those kinds. Right. And a more accurate term is really populations, because species is a construct right. of the human That's mind right. to try yeah. to okay. explain things. Exactly. I, so right. so why, why is macroevolution, or the general theory of evolution, why is it held so adamantly and dogmatically within the academic or scientific community today? Uh, with respect to that, it's a worldview. It's, it's really all-encompassing in the way people think, and they don't like to be challenged on that. And that is why some of the people who hear anything that has to do with creation or, or God's planning things, they will react emotionally. It's, it's not just a scientific idea that they're upset with. They are upset at their, the fun, their belief system being challenged. Yeah. Right, they don't okay. like it. Yeah, it's probably Most people, many of them are macroevolutionists, really don't think much about it. Though many people like Dawkins are certainly people who have been very vociferous in what they say. Dr. Hunsinger, and then we have a call. Like challenge. Yeah. All right. yeah. Yeah, I, and I don't either. I understand yeah, that. Sure. Bill, this was your toughest question, and I don't know if you want me to respond here to that at this point, but if I if I could say, I have four points that I believe why it's very difficult to that change occur. Back in the 1540s, when Copernicus wrote the text, uh, we had a Copernican revolution, but along with that revolution of heliocentrism, we also moved into the doctrine of the Copernican principle of mediocrity. And so our earth diminished, and so did God. Carl Sagan has that quote that I've already mentioned about an insignificant planet. And then number two, there's the modern New Age humanism. We simply don't want a boss. That's <laughs> the no. will thing. Okay. You know, rejecting GTA opens us up to the alternative, creation by a creator, basically to whom Scripture says one day we'll all have to give account. And paradigms die hard, as I mentioned already. And just consider the two millennia overarching paradigm of spontaneous generation. The idea of that in, in abiogenesis, we could form one single living cell out of that prebiotic soup that we had of Operin's model, to Pasteur, who was a creationist and finally destroyed it with your classic. And to me, if you ask what the greatest bio- biological experiment is, hands down, the gooseneck flask, because after that, man began to look for the real cause of disease and not mixed with the blood and the Hippocrates thinking of the imbalanced humors. And finally, the popularity of Darwinism. I mean, it took off in the 19th century, and it wasn't because there was evidence. It wasn't at all. It was rather that now began the thinking that man was unshackled from a moral restrictive tyrant. New vistas and freedoms were open. Well, and also it fit the first with the... Day, yeah. first day of the origins was put out. It sold out first day, and people said, I believe it, before they ever read it, indicating that there were all kinds of other factors in society. 
leading it to its adoption. Well, and, and also it, at that time, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, came in too uh, with the Industrial Revolution, where where the yes. worldview was progress. Everything was progressing yes. in a better direction, and Darwin sort of rode the crest of that, I think. Very much so, and there were many other writers from a book called uh, Seven Men Who Rule from the Grave. But uh, I think it kind of exemplifies uh, Karl Marx's famous statement, religion merely is the opiate of the masses. We've got to move upward from the proletariat. Oh, we have to go with, as you mentioned, the Industrial Revolution had a big, big influence, uh, where man now throughout biblical uh, authority, uh, like that proverbial baby I mentioned. But we also walked with this theory of survival of the fittest in social Darwinist thinking of the German people particularly, we march straight into the disastrous consequences of World War One and World War Two. Interesting. Now our time is is rapidly going by, but I got to ask this question. Um, first, Dr. McCarg, and then Dr. Hunsinger. Are there ethical implications? I think we maybe just have almost gotten to that in adopting the oh, general yes, theory of evolution. Yeah, please. If, if, if macroevolution is true, and if the assumptions that underlie it of complete materialism are true, there really is no reason for ethics. The survival of the fittest is, is there, but with respect to that, uh, why should we, we have any kind of ethical things at all? Furthermore, the implication is the universe is purposeful. I can't seem to get that word out. Well, try There's anesthesiologist. No <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a tough one. <laughs> but the, there is no point to anything. There's no reason for ethics at all. And you can, the only argument you might make is, well, you don't murder people because it may cut back on the population. But at the same like time, like you may comment. murder people because they have some genes that are not particularly considered to be desirable, yeah. so you get rid of them. Yeah, Doc, yeah. Dawkins has wrote against the having children that are Down syndrome, got quite a big a flack by it for those who are raising these wonderful children. And, there, and, when, and who, uh, we certainly know suicide and drug overdoses are, are a leading cause of death in America's precious youth. But, but if there is no purpose in life or no purpose in the universe and the world and so on, it's going to have a, a very deleterious effect on on human life. And as Dawkins would say, I'm sorry to interrupt, I did do that, and I apologize. But as Dawkins would say in his selfish gene of 1972, we're just but, get this, robotic machines that natural selection has fashioned in order to secure the survival of our selfish genes. And just to maybe... So we blame it on our selfish genes. What the appetite of the audience, while people don't like it being brought up, probably one of the most thoroughgoing evolutionists, macroevolutionists of the 20th century was Adolf Hitler. And Absolutely his desire true. to bring about the superior race, but okay. In the minutes, in the, in the time left, we just we've only got a couple minutes. What what brothers are the most important points Christians committed to the doctrine of creation should make when they speak with friends, relatives, teachers who believe in in macroevolution? Let me begin with with Dr. Hunsiger. Most important. I guess I'll points. take this one first. <laughs> okay. We're looking at each other, wondering which side of the table this ping pong ball is going to be hit. <laughs> Okay. Uh, first thing I would I would say is is the manner of which you talk with someone. It, it's got to be warm, and it's got to understand that we many of us, like us, came from a, a doctrine of which we were immersed in and thought truly that that was the fact. As I mentioned, like gravity. But I think you definitely can still be a Christian with saving grace of Jesus. But I do think that GTE, that is that general theory, the macroevolution that we talked about, does weaken your faith and your witness, and it weakens your view of the God of creation. It will, I think, dilute your view of a caring God that is our keeper 
and the impact of such verses as the heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm 19. Or, and I love this one, Psalm 121, I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Bill, I would say, too, with respect to this whole question, that the fossil evidence is such that things suddenly appear. And there's been enough time to look for the progenitors of, of the Cambrian explosion, for example, which we were prepared to talk about quite a lot. And it's not there. Uh, the other thing is that is really persuasive for me is looking at the possibility of some kind of spontaneous mutations and that are based on proteins, nuclei, nucleic, can't nucleic seem to get that word out, nucleic acids and things, DNA, RNA, forming spontaneously. And coordinated. And, and mutations have to be coordinated to bring about new body plants. The DNA has to be able to undergo a change to come out to something that makes sense, that will code for protein or have some other function. The probability of that is so infinitesimally small. There's a principle in physics. If things are so unlikely, it's not going to happen. And that applies at this point. And looking at the possibility of forming one protein from things, say 250, 300 amino acids, is, is incredibly small. And it's it's not going to take place, and there are incredibly large numbers of things, and you get one out of, say, 10 to the 40 or something that will function. All right. that, we, that, to me, is, is highly persuasive. Uh, my, my and, simple, Bill, I, yeah. I think a quote from Fred Hoyle, a British, a late Fred Hoyle, a British astronomer who gave us that nucleosynthesis yeah. Yeah. inside of the core of stars, he said something that was heretical in, in the 1960s, that to liken the development of a complex life form, that is, abiogenesis, is comparable to a 747, uh, uh, is comparable to a, to a tornado flying over a junkyard and expecting that randomness to assemble a 747. That was Fred Hoyle. Life is not random. It isn't. And it takes too much faith to believe that. It's been wonderful having Drs. Larry McCarg and Dr. Galen Hunsiger with us today. (laughs) I told you it'd be a roller coaster ride, and it was. (laughs) A free book offer, the book God and the Cosmos, A Christian View of Time, Space, and the Universe by John Bile, courtesy of the Banner of Truth Trust, if you'd like it. Email me with your mailing address. Visit PastorBill at gmail.com for the free book and any questions we can pass them on to doctors Hunsinger and McCarg for you. Remember, tomorrow's the Lord's Day. Be sure to set apart time to worship the Lord in a church that is faithful to the Word of God. And remember, too, that everyone needs a pastor. You've been listening to A Visit to the Pastor's Study, a ministry of Reformation Metro New York. Our website is www.reformationmetrony.org. Again, that's www.reformationmetrony.org. For more information on the program, check out our website at www.visitthepastorsstudy.org. That's www.visitthepastorsstudy.org. Listen in next week at 12 noon for another edition of A Visit to the Pastor's Study. Remember, everyone needs a pastor.